Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Cheese and pickle. Hello, this is Comfort Blanket and I'm Joel Morris. I'm going to be talking to someone who makes cool stuff that I like about some warm stuff that they like. A book or a TV show or a film or a record they go back to again and again for comfort. This time I'm talking to the writer and journalist Andrew Mayle. Andrew writes about film and TV and music for publications such as Sight and Sound, Sunday Times and Mojo Magazine, amongst others. And Andrew has chosen for his comfort blanket the sound shorts of Laurel and Hardy. We're going to start with The Music Box, for which they won an Oscar, and then we'll talk about another selection of sound shorts that Andrew has chosen, which we'll do in part two. We're going to start with The Music Box in part one, after a general chat about Laurel and Hardy, and then we'll go deeper in to what Andrew feels are more representative films, even than their most famous Oscar-winning short. So this is Andrew on The Shorts of Laurel and Hardy, part one. brought something lovely along yes i have brought the short sound films of laurel and hardy the 20 minute two reelers that they made between 1930 and 1936 the prime period the version of laurel and hardy that you'd know if you did an impression of laurel and hardy or drew a picture of laurel and hardy or the You're drawing ver- that version or the version of laurel and hardy you'd know if you were a child or a teenager in the 80s or 90s and you watched bbc2 <laughs> in the morning or after school laurel and hardy make another comeback next week on bbc2 starting on monday evening at 20 to 6 with our wife alongside previous subject the original series of star trek and the Phil Silvers show. The sound shorts of Laurel and Hardy were a perennial fixture on BBC Two in the mid-80s to early-80s. In tomorrow morning's Laurel and Hardy double bill, Pardon Us at 11 o'clock has Stan and Ollie landing in jail, and the second film, The Music Box at 11.50, is famous as the first short film to win an Oscar. That's tomorrow's double bill starting at 11 o'clock here on BBC Two. This stuff, a lot of this culture that so you and I and lots of other people have picked up that didn't belong to your immediate generation was a bit like the equivalent. I know people, people tell that story about getting into comics because they were used as the ballast in ships. Yes. Schedule filler was yeah. very often cheap American stuff that was not out of copyright, but quite cheap to pick up. So the BBC would stuff its schedules with 
repeats of Old Republic serials like The Flash Gordon or, yep. or King of the Rocket Men. And these old black and white golden age of comedy. Which shorts. is I mean, which is a really important point to make because so much of that stuff it does its job at the time, the flashing blade. It does its <laughs> it does its job at the time and people still have a kind of curious kind of single layer nostalgia about them in which they're nostalgic for the theme tune they're nostalgic <laughs> they're nostalgic for saying oh do you remember the flashing blade but beyond that they serve no purpose you've got to fight for what you want have you done the thing where you buy something like subscription to BritBox and go oh all my favourite programmes are on here and you watch the title sequence yeah and three minutes and go this is terrible and the difference with Laurel and Hardy <laughs> is that they stayed. Yeah. And the weird thing about them is obviously kind of, of all the stuff that you would have watched then, they are the oldest. These were ancient back then. There's no reason why they should work because I remember at the same time watching those compilation films called The Golden Age of Silent Cinema. Yeah. And they would show Harold Lloyd and Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin, all of which I admire acknowledge our great talents but none of them stayed with me in the way that laurel and hardy did none of them provided sort of comfort and succor and charm and warmth in the way that laurel and hardy did there is something about those short films and the performances within them from those two men that have a warmth and a humanity and just a kind of reassurance that none of those other silent comedians had. It's a a wedding present I bought for you. Now, isn't that thoughtful? What is it? Guess. I haven't got time to guess. Open it and show it to me. Now, why did you have to buy a thing like that? Well, now that you're going to be married, You won't be going out much at night, and I thought it'd be something for us to play with. I can watch uh, The General with Buster Keaton and acknowledge that it's a masterpiece. It's beautifully made. It's beautifully acted. The the blocking, the framing is perfect. The stunts are magnificent. But I don't care about Buster Keaton's inner life in the way that I care about the inner life of Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy. I don't worry about these people don't think, I don't, is harold lloyd gonna be okay yeah no because but, but in the sense like you know when stan gets upset or when ollie gets exasperated there is a believability to their performances that is i'm utterly invested in would you mind opening the window not that one this one i can't get my hands out I think this is the crucial thing where when people talk about finding Laurel and Hardy comforting or having a love for them, I think that's the difference. I think you can admire. You can actually, you can love Chapman, you can love Keaton, you can love them as artists Mm. and you can love their work and you can love Harold Lloyd. But there's a difference with these guys in that they are starting something that we are still within the world invented by these films. And the difference is, it comes down to something really simple. The difference is for me that there are two of them. Yeah. So you have to watch, to guess what's going to happen next to Stan and Ollie and what you're meant to be laughing at. To enjoy them, you watch their faces, you watch their eyes, and you have to guess how they feel about each other in a way that you do to a certain extent in those other films in Chaplin, but it'll be sentiment. It'll Mm. be something like how he's sad or he's lonely or he's hungry. They're quite simple emotions because it's one person reacting to other characters who are not the core 
of the film. They're side characters. With Stan and Ollie, the whole thing is about their relationship. Don't you realize that I'm about to become a big oil magnet? You know what a magnet is, don't you? Sure, a thing that eats cheese. It's a revolution, I think, in comedy. They come out of silent comedy where they're just doing stunts and antics and circus pratfalls. And they, as soon as it gets to sound, there's this huge leap forward where you're watching them and you're reading their faces for intent and emotion and relationships. And from that, we get modern comedy. Yeah. Sitcom. That, that double act is more than a clown double act because a clown double act is enacted on a stage a long way away. Yeah. And suddenly the camera can get in close and you can see how two people react and what they think about one another. Yeah, and as a result, the legacy of, you know, Laurel and Hardy is huge. You can see it in Father Ted. These are small, but the ones out there are far away. You can see it in The Office. You know, the looks to camera in The Office are Oliver Hardy looks to camera. If you were to ask me to name three geniuses, I'd go Milligan, Cleese, Everett, Sessions. They're the thing that, that Eddie Braben added to Morecambe Weiss. He said, we'll add Laurel and Hardy yeah. to it. Do you like apples, then? Not a lot. <laughs> Look, why don't you find yourself something to do instead of munching that apple in my ear? Go and do something. I'll write the script. Uh, no, don't do that. We'll make them a couple, a pair who've got each other's backs. And that thing where they're not just bickering, because I think that's the difference between them and, say, if you think of other troops like Abbott and Costello or the Marx Brothers, they are all independently bickering and competing. Yeah. But with Stan and Ollie, it's a different relationship. It's not one-upmanship. Very often they're in a battle of one-upmanship with someone else. Yeah. But it's very rare that the main competition is between Stan and Ollie. They might bicker and fight. But they're not trying to beat each other. Morecambe and Wise comparison is a really good point because early Morecambe and Wise is very much that kind of vaudeville sort of front of curtain yeah. stuff. You know, and basically it's on a single plane, which is kind of how the Phil Silver show work. It's all the actors are standing in line. It's, yeah. it's front curtain stuff. And it's kind of... But as soon as Eddie Braben comes in and he takes that Laurel and Hardy element and you go behind the curtain and you enter into a three-dimensional world. Listen, I'm the only friend that you've ever had. And you know why? Because nobody else will have anything to do with you. Robbie! What are you talking about? I've got hundreds of friends. Hundreds of friends? Hundreds of friends! All right, name one. Yes, right! <laughs> well, it's difficult to name them all. Like that. I mean, Eric Morecambe actually said something in terms of his relationship with Ernie when Eddie Braven was writing them, and he said, it's two idiots, but I'm a bigger idiot than him because I think I'm smarter than him. Yeah. And that's exactly the same relationship that Oliver Hardy has with Stan Laurel. We can't sit up here all night. We're not going to sit up all night. We'll fix ourselves a nice bed and be just as comfortable as two peas in a pod. <laughs> oh. Oliver Hardy actually has a quote that's very similar to that, and he said there's no bigger idiot than an idiot who thinks he knows everything. Yeah. And that is their role. Their role is very, very classically theatrical. Stan Laurel sort of develops this act, and they've been paired with other double acts before, but it's only when the two of them get together... There's something that's added by the two of them that it that transcends a classic music hall double act. And when afterwards you see other music hall double acts that haven't borrowed the Laurel and Hardy formula, they seem quite basic. Yeah. And I mean, the Abbott and Costello comparison is a good point because basically the relationship between Abbott and Costello is almost like the the mark and the stooge, you know, the, the con man and the conned. Yeah. You know, there's something cruel about it. There's something mean about it. Whereas Laurel and Hardy, it is ultimately about friendship. Oh, you're perspiring. 
Maybe you have got a fever. The reason why these two men stay together is because of friendship. There's also something quite heartbreaking and tragic about that because, I mean, one of the shorts, Helpmates, begins with Ollie is coming round with a huge hangover after a wild party. His house has been absolutely trashed. And it's the idea that his house has been trashed by stock characters from <laughs> Hal Roach films. You know, yeah. of course, if you invite loads of Hal Roach stock characters over to your house, they are going to wreck the joint. The Keystone Cops are going to ruin it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but who, who does he have to call on to help him? No one but Stan. Listen, I'm in a slight predicament. My wife's coming home today at noon unexpectedly. And look at this house. What's the matter with it? What's the matter with it? You never met my wife, did you? Yes, I never did. And you know that there's a part of him that knows that this is a terrible idea. That Stan will not help. That Stan will wreck the house even more. But there's something poignant in the fact that Stan is his only friend. And that dynamic, the idea of someone who their only friend is someone they can't trust, yeah. is the very basis of so many sitcoms. It's how Hancock works, Sid and Tony, and Sid is not to be trusted. And it's how Peepso works, is how Jeremy shouldn't trust Mark, and Mark shouldn't trust Jeremy. But who else have they got? Yeah. And that setup of look into the eyes of these people. Now the camera can go in close and now we can hear them speak. Now it's not just those lovely caption titles that were in the silent ones. I wish I knew what it felt like to see one of those super captions come up before you'd heard Stan Ollie speak because yeah. now you hear them in their voices. But as soon as you've got those voices, the amazing thing is that they sound richly like what they are. They found the right voices for themselves and you know those characters and you know they are totally codependent and totally the worst people for each other. Yeah. And it's the thing that the wives are always saying. Why do you hang around with that person? Yes. They are no good for you. And the wives, who are nagging wives, are right. Yeah. They're right. They are bad for each other and yet they are brilliant for each other. Are you going? Huh? I said, are you going? Yes, sugar. Uh, Mrs Hardy. Who said so? Him. It's the odd couple, it's the likely lads, it's Adina and Patsy. This person is the worst person you could be best friends with, works through the whole of comedy, and I don't think it existed before Stan and Ollie, where it was just sticking a fat guy with a thin guy yeah. before. This is a Shakespearean-sized revolution in saying there are inner lives to these people. They're not just cartoon characters or rubber dolls you can throw off the top of buildings. And it's rooted, I think, in that transition to sound. Like, they don't just adjust to sound they don't just accommodate it they use it in a far more interesting and clever way than yeah. any of the other silent comedians because basically what they do is they use sound to add pathos they yeah. use it to add contemplation the fact they don't fill everything with yakking and dialogue yeah. they hold on to the quiet moments from silent cinema well i'll be seeing you goodbye Would you mind closing the door? I'd like to be alone. One of the great uses of silence in the Laurel and Hardy films is one of the defining elements of those films, which is Ollie's silent look to camera. Yeah. And I think that is hugely influential. But I don't think people talk about kind of how fascinating and complex it is. And basically, it's, <laughs> it's Ollie's curse. Ollie 
is aware of the audience. Yeah. He knows he's being watched. He's trapped in a world that he can't escape from, for better and for mostly worse. Stan is his only friend in this world. It's almost like you could imagine a Life on Mars type <laughs> prologue to the Stan and Ollie shorts, where Ollie is this prim Southern businessman who, for some bizarre reason, ends up trapped within the world of the Hal Roach short. <laughs> he's and pulled so through the screen. He's pulled, and so it's like the Purple Rose of Cairo. And there's a part, <laughs> there's a part of him that can see us looking at him, and we can see his embarrassment. <laughs> we can see his humiliation. We can see his shame. And because the other thing is, Stan is completely part of the comic Hal Roach world. There is no part of Stan that exists in our world, in the yeah. real world. Stan is like this force of chaotic magic. He's completely part of the cinematic world. He's a world. sprite, isn't he? But he's he got is. magic. He can light a cigar with his thumb. Yeah. But also he doesn't feel pain in the way that yeah. Ollie feels pain. <laughs> One of the great things about the use of sound is... Ollie's cries of pain. Oh, you know, all the kind of cries as he flies through the air and lands headfirst in the ground. He is someone who is suffering in front of our eyes. And we see that suffering when he kind of looks into the camera and says, part of him is saying, I know. It's a little bit who framed Roger Rabbit. That yeah. someone's been dragged into. Or the way that Daffy Duck seems to understand that Daffy Duck is trapped in a cartoon. Yeah. Buster, it may come as a complete surprise to you to find that this is an animated cartoon. And that in animated cartoons, they have scenery. Whereas Bugs Bunny lives there. Yes. And uh, yeah, the Looney Tunes world, Bugs Bunny is at home. <laughs> Bugs Bunny rules the Looney Tunes world. Whereas Daffy Duck is constantly annoyed and frustrated that he is a cartoon character yeah. who can be manipulated by animators and there's a part of him who believes that he should be on the other side of that screen. I think it's the same with Ollie. Uh, excuse me please, my ear is full of milk. They invent a language from a standing start of how to do screen double act comedy that has incredible sophistication in it and has all the rules really clear mm. so that you know when you're watching it and you feel it's broken the rules because they're inventing it so sometimes they sort of go too far they yeah. make it too cartoonish and the key to it is that Ollie is human yeah. and Stan is magic What are you trying to do? Do you want me to get my throat cut? No Well then don't go to sleep Well I can't tell when I'm asleep That's why I want you to stay awake so that you can see that you're not asleep. Well, I couldn't help it. I was dreaming I was awake. And then I woke up and found myself asleep. <clears throat> when critics talk about Laurel and Hardy, they're fascinated by Stan being magic. Mm. And you're right. What you want to say is, no, the whole world's magic. Because yeah. it's got things like cars can fly through the air and, and people will be dragged through a sawmill and yeah. necks can stretch. And impossible things can happen. It's got cartoon physics, except for Ollie. Yeah. And Ollie, you'll notice there's a great bit in Tit for Tat where he gets a burn on his nose yeah. from a soldering iron. And that burn is there for the rest of the film. Yeah. In a way that I think with Stan, it would get better. Yes. Because you know that Ollie really hurt and he is suffering the pain of someone trapped in a Hal Roach short. Yeah. And his friend Stan, who is his only hope there, doesn't understand that Ollie gets hurt. <laughs> I kind of have quite strict rules about <laughs> what makes a Laurel and Hardy short work and what 
makes it fail. So like, for example, I think it's in the short Dirty Work where they are chimney sweepers and, and they're sweeping the chimney of this mad scientist. And at the end, Ollie falls into this huge vat of chemicals. <laughs> And comes out, and he is a monkey. Ollie, don't you know me? Won't you speak to me? I have nothing to say. And because it's kind of, I think they're kind of like chemicals that prevent the aging process. So he kind of regresses so far yeah. back that he becomes a monkey. And I don't like it. Yeah. It breaks the rule. It kind of goes against this idea that, you know, Ollie is a real person trying to maintain his decorum yeah. within a chaotic, silent movie world. And he's trying, above all, to come out of this with his dignity. Jessup! Where is Jessup? Jessup? Oh, about 35 miles southeast of Augusta, Georgia. No, 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 I mean my butler. Oh, he went somewhere to look for an electric chair. Uh, was there something we could do for you? You talked about like there being a Life on Mars style preamble, but it's never declared. This is how sophisticated I think comedy is in the way it talks to audiences. You feel in your gut it's a step too far when he becomes a monkey. Mm. I think most people would agree with that. And there are stunts in it that would be acceptable in a Chaplin or in a Buster Keaton. Or, or in a, a pre-sound silent or, movie, yeah. The moment that these guys are real, the moment they're talking to you, the moment you can hear that the guy called Oliver Hardy, who is playing a character called Oliver Hardy, talks to you, the audience, you go, he's real, he's me. Yeah. Now I don't want him to have the rules of a Daffy Duck cartoon. Yes. And it does feel like, you know how no one likes Mickey Mouse? Yes. Because the only rules of Mickey Mouse is that the drawing can bounce really yes and then the moment you get to warner brothers and maybe tom and jerry and things start to get more sophisticated and you go oh these characters have wants and needs and desires they're not just at the whim of an animator's pen that ollie hardy is a complete construct of that there's an inner life to yeah. these cartoon characters and you understand it implicitly as an audience who he is what can happen to him and how he feels and that is a huge leap forward from silent to sound. Within a year, they're doing this very sophisticated game that says, this is a real man. Yeah. And it's done because you can hear him. He's talking to you. They've embraced it brilliantly. I think it's also underlined by how beautifully he moves. Yeah. I think because obviously Chaplin has a beauty to his movements. So does Keaton. But there's something about Oliver Hardy. There's something about the delicacy of his movements, the little flourishes that he gives when he's, you know, putting a gingham tablecloth down for lunch or something. And I think it adds to his humanity, but it also adds to that sense of him realising that he is on show that yeah. we are watching him and he knows yeah. we're watching him. But also it creates even more humiliation for him when that decorum, that sense of order is stripped away from him. Clean that mess up while I get something to put it in. the way you wind up tension and release in mm. drama there's the same rules for comedy it's much funnier for the king to get a pie in the face after a big proclamation and ollie hardy's insistence on maintaining dignity yeah gives him so much further to fall which means that the jokes that happen to him are much much funnier insistence on maintaining dignity even after the custard pie or the paint <laughs> or the mud has hit his face so there is something 
absolutely unassailably beautiful in the way that he then removes said custard pie or paint or mud or yeah. dirt from his face and the and the way in which he does it just kind of removing the eyes first and the little flick that so he can gives look at you. yeah so you can look at you. it's a real understanding of within the rules of antique manic stunt comedy that is the basis of how this form was invented in silent cinema the really important thing is the setup to the pie in the face the build up and the the playing out of the action what laurel and hardy add i think and no one else is doing is that layer of character and that means that when the pie is hit or he's fallen face down in the paint or the mud or whatever while you're laughing and they put these in you can feel it when you watch at home there's a gap for the audience to calm down and stop laughing before the next line comes but they then ride that by adding Ollie's reaction and his appeal to the audience to get two more laughs out yeah. of it and if you cut away from every custard pie to another custard pie yeah. you wouldn't have this lovely rhythm that is all to do with character and nothing to do with action yeah. it slows down so there's that extra bit of pace that's not to do with antic or manic energy it's all to do with reading eyes reading intent and what it's to do with is a thing that hasn't been in silent comedy before which is theory of mind yeah. you look at it and you go what would it feel like and the rule usually with slapstick is you shouldn't really think what it feels like. Yeah. Ow. Yeah. And then you see in Ollie's eyes that he's okay, but ow. <laughs> yeah. But he also, lets you feel ow. But also it's so much more than ow. And that thing that you said about are they giving you time to calm down before the next gag or are they riding the gag? Ollie's reactions are doing both, aren't they? Yeah. Because clearly what Ollie's doing after the house brick has fallen on his head. <laughs> It's he is putting himself back together again. He's basically doing the equivalent of tightening up his tie and taking a deep breath and carrying on. But us watching him do that just brings more laughter. It's really complex when you actually kind of find yourself talking about it. What's going on there? What it's doing is something which is really fundamental to how sitcom works. Because this is going to birth not only more film comedy and more stage comedy and more stuff, more sketch comedy, like more and Wise. This is going to birth the system by which we watch sitcom. Yeah. I think, which is which is that these double acts and triple acts and quadruple acts that form the dynamic matrices of characters within sitcoms. I can't believe I even said that. But yeah, <laughs> these, these complicated relationships that, that are the reason we watch sitcom and enjoy sitcom are down to us reading what the characters are feeling, what you think they're going to do next. It gives you a treat as a human being to go, oh, I've got something to eat. Yeah. It's more nourishing than watching a plank hit someone and go, yeah. oh, that was funny. That was beautifully set up, a bucket falling on yeah. someone's head. You might wonder at the direction and the acrobatics of it. Yeah. But if you are then invited to watch the eyes and imagine how that person feels. So you're invited to empathise with Ollie. But weirdly, we should talk about this as well, there are pauses after something happens to Stan. Yeah. And Stan reacts... But Stan's reactions are trying to compute the yeah. world as explained to him by Ollie. Absolutely. And Ollie will say, this is how the world outside a crazy silent movie works. And Stan won't understand. Yeah. So when Ollie phones him up and pretends he's Mr. Jones yeah. to fool his wife. Yeah. It'll have a tendency to promote me to higher endeavours. <laughs> I'll get it. Hello? Hey, Ollie, this is me. Oh, hello, Mr. Jones. Oh, don't you worry. I'm quite sure it'll be all right. Goodbye, Mr. Jones. Stan then thinks he might be Mr. Jones. Yeah. And his slow reaction is to look in the mirror, check his wallet, yes. find out his identity. So you are being invited as an audience to empathise with someone who you have lots in common with, 
who's Ollie, whose dignity is being yeah. constantly compromised by fools. The yeah. standard sitcom lead. Blackadder is dealing with fools below him and fools above him. That's where Ollie is. He's a middle manager, yeah. suffering the fools in the world. But you're also invited to empathise with a magic character. Yeah. And you have to read, well, what are his rules? And yeah. his rules are, in the world I'm in, impossible things happen all the time. Yeah. Come in. What do you want? I just came to tell Ollie that was me on the phone. He's tapping his head and going, you don't make any sense. And so you are constantly having empathy for two completely incompatible worldviews that belong to two inseparable friends. That I'm, is a sitcom. I was I was <laughs> trying to think of kind of the, what I read in Ollie and Stan's faces. And in Ollie, you see disappointment, yeah. sadness, despair, anger, resignation, exasperation, pompousness, humility. With Stan, it's confusion yeah amazement that's the other thing he yeah. is amazed at the world a kind of a weird mix of credulity and incredulity yeah you know kind of stan exists between those two worlds a vulnerability a blankness yeah but also the other thing i was thinking as well is like i'm surprised no one has has written this or is, i'm surprised no one's got angry about this on social media <laughs> Because you'd probably now say that Stan Laurel has dyspraxia. The reason that we enjoy watching comedy characters is that they exemplify being at a slight angle to the universe. Yeah. Whoever it is. I mean, I write Philomena Kunk. The joy of Philomena yeah. Kunk is she's at a slight angle to the universe. Yeah. She can't understand what stairs are or what clocks are. Yeah. That's a lot of Stan Laurel. In yeah. It. You have a character there and what's happening is they're both at a slight angle to the universe. Yeah. And Ollie's slight angle to the universe is completely reasonable because the universe makes no sense. Yes. And Stan's slight angle to the universe, he's at a slight angle to our universe. Yes. You so our universe makes no sense to Stan. Yes. Yes. And Stan's universe makes no sense to Ollie, Ollie. and they are together. And that is a great sitcom double act. And what Beautiful, you're doing then is, isn't it? I think there's enormous kindness to that because you're not being asked to laugh at Stan for not understanding it. You're being invited to empathise with him and go, I bet it's really confusing. And the dynamic that's between them could be said to roughly fit along the lines of a child and an adult. Yeah. And an adult goes, this is how the world makes sense. I have my standing and my dignity. Yeah. And it's constantly brought down. A dad who trips over and they go, oh, dad. Yeah. That's Ollie. Yeah. Whereas Stan is a child who goes, can't the world be lovely? Yeah. Can't the world be magical? Yeah. What Stan's logic is the logic of talking to a toddler. Yeah. And it's magical because I think the other thing that works with these two characters is they are completely relatable. Though they're weird and cartoonish. One of them is a bit of a parent yeah. and one of them is a bit of a child. So we've experienced that. We've been possibly both of those or known both those people. Yeah. So it's quite easy to practice a really basic human relationship between maybe older sibling and younger sibling. Yeah. There's a little bit of Charlie Brown and Sally and Peanuts yeah. to them. Definitely. They're looking after each other. Come on, Sally. It's time to go to school. Not for me. What do you mean, not for you? I went yesterday. Ollie believes... That if Stan weren't there, his world would run smoothly. <laughs> yes. You know, how much we believe that is is uncertain. But what's very obvious is that even if Stan is left to his own devices without Ollie, chaos will ensue. What are you eating? A apple. Where'd you get it? In there. Well, that's not real fruit. It's imitation. It's made of wax. What's incredible about these Laurel and Hardy sound shorts is that 
straight out of the traps within a few months after the invention of sound. They adopt it, they absolutely master it, and they give us a way of understanding comedy that has been impossible beforehand. Because if you ever watched two people doing a double act on stage, they were too far away. And if you watched them on screen, they couldn't speak. And they've suddenly gone, what if we could do intimacy, humanity, character work, internal life, theory of mind, guessing what a character will do next, interrelationships, and also have the antic manic energy of a chaplain. And no one else did that. No. And they invented it. And if you're watching The Simpsons or South Park or whatever happened to The Lightly Lads, you are watching something which was born when Laurel and Hardy worked out how to do this. Yes, absolutely. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The best way of understanding the glory of Laurel and Hardy's sound shorts is to pick a few, and you've picked four absolute classics that you reckon are the cream of the crop. I picked three absolute classics, which I reckon are the cream of the crop, and my fourth kept changing. I couldn't <laughs> fix on it, but the definite three are Toad in a Hole from 1932, The Music Box from 1932, and Them Their Hills from 1934. And I think, as the fourth one, I think I'm going to go with Their First Mistake, also from 1932. Good year for them, 32. Very good year for them, because <laughs> they also win an Oscar in 1932, because the music box is an Academy Award-winning short. Would you gentlemen please let me pass? Why, certainly, ma'am. Why, just a moment. <laughs> And we should talk a bit about the reputation that the music box has, the fact that it's the short sound film that everyone mentions in relation to Laurel and Hardy and why I think it's a terrible place for lots of people to start with, even though I think it's an almost perfect film. Pardon me, Mr Postman. Yes, sir. Could you tell me where 1127 Walnut Avenue is? 1127 Walnut Avenue? Yes, sir. That's the house up there, right on top of the stoop. I think you're right. And I found this out when I decided to get my kid into Laurel and Hardy. And we watched a bunch of them. And we only, it was joyous. Watching Laurel and Hardy with a kid mm. is the same as when you watch Laurel and Hardy as a kid. Yeah. This doesn't belong to my generation. It's not like it's got any resonances. I'm not a Depression-era kid. There's nothing that should stop a, like an eight or nine-year-old getting what's going yeah. on in Laurel and Hardy. 
And the music box was the one that we didn't like. Yeah. It was slightly too stressful. It slightly too tense. Yeah. And the thing that makes Laurel and Hardy work is warmth. Yeah. The music box feels a little bit more like one of those other guys' films. They are (laughs) exasperated in the music box. That's the house up there, right on top of the stoop. Ollie is at the point of saying something really mean to Stan. You feel like (laughs) it's about to get pushed over into cruel Abbott and Costello world. Go down and see what he wants. You go down and see what he wants. Don't argue with me. Go see what the man wants. I'm not arguing. Go ahead. They might not be friends at the end of it. Because it's the one which is a a situation, which is, it's the Sisyphan task one where they're taking a piano up this huge LA flight of steps. To 1127 Walnut Avenue. That's where it's got to go. A player piano has to go from the bottom to the top. They're removal men. It's the classic Laurel and Hardy short. But weirdly, it's the one that is so stressful that you fear for their friendship. Also, (laughs) I think it's so repetitious. But I think someone who's not a fan of Laurel and Hardy will watch it and go, is this all that happens? Yeah. Is this all they do? And you can go, oh, but blah, blah, classical references, blah, blah, the myth of Sisyphus, blah, blah, you know, the futility of existence, the working man confronted yeah. by blah, blah. And then someone goes saying, no, it's boring and it's making me feel quite stressed. It's a bit like you've got an absolute favourite sitcom or drama and you insist that someone watches the bottle episode first. Yes. The one where they're trapped in a lift. Yeah. And that might be the best one for someone who knows the characters. Yeah. Because you put them in a situation that might break them, that could snap them. But it's not the best way of demonstrating a a double act where I think what we've talked about here is that the magic of them is how much they transcend that abstraction of silent comedy. Well, when are you two numbskulls going to take this thing out of the way? What's it to you? There's something about the music box that feels like a particularly avant-garde cartoon. Yes, absolutely. No, absolutely. It's like you Czechoslovakian feel like, animation. Yeah, or, you, or you feel like Brunwell. <laughs> you, you imagine that all the surrealists loved the music box. Yeah. You, know, you imagine that Dali and Brunwell loved the music box for exactly those reasons. It's because, the Beckett one. Yeah, and because it's it's rooted in Greek mythology. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's so all the intellectuals like the music box. You know, every everybody who kind of like, probably people who don't like Laurel and Hardy shorts say, oh, well, of course, the music box is a classic. Yeah. Ollie, what? I can't make it. Don't weaken now. We've only got a couple more steps. Now both together. Two things redeem the music box for me. One is that Laurel and Hardy are not responsible for the destruction of the player piano. It sets up right from the start that this piano is going to get destroyed. They are trying to push a boxed player piano up a huge flight of stairs in Los Angeles. (laughs) So right from the start, you think they are going to destroy this piano and they are going to get punished for it. And that doesn't happen. They successfully, I won't say safely, they successfully (laughs) deliver the piano to where it's meant to be. The other thing that redeems it is you get a moment of utter joy in which they work together and dance to the sounds of the player piano. Yeah. Now let's get this place cleaned up. In a way, it still has that kind of futility of 
labour sort of subplot that all of the music box has because they're trying to tidy up the mess they've created <laughs> and Ollie is moving the mess from one place and Stan is picking up that mess and moving it back to the place where Ollie has moved it from so it's an <laughs> utterly futile gesture and it can be infuriating but while they're doing it they are dancing yeah. and the dancing that they do is so beautiful and it's so balletic and it's so warm and gorgeous and you see them as friends and you see them at this moment of achievement they have delivered the piano they are tidying up they have done something and in their eyes they've done something right and that joy that comes through is i think what redeems the music box for me you're absolutely right you're always close to a point with the music box where you're saying this is too mean too stressful i can't watch it i think that is the scene that redeems it <laughs> service with a smile <laughs> stanley the pen that's crucial to laurel and hardy yes in that the rest of this as a formal exercise could belong to many other genres, avant-garde theatre, yeah. weird animation. Another silent comedian could do this. Yes. Anyone could do it. And yet the thing you remember, the thing you take home is the moment of warmth, the moment of character, the moment of friendship. Yes. And there are loads of moments in Laurel and Hardy where you realise that maybe the the setups and the direction aren't up to Buster Keaton. But mm. very often the bit you remember is when they smiled. And the number of times that happens in Laurel and Hardy where your favourite bit is a look yeah. or an exchange, something that doesn't belong to the very, very elaborate world of Keystone Cops and how... Right. Something that wouldn't be in the shooting script, you know. Yeah. And also you... Let's be sacrilegious for a moment and say that if Buster Keaton had made the music box in terms of the actual act of trying to get the yeah. piano up the flight of stairs he probably would have made it better than Laurel and Hardy. His sense of the ballet of space yeah. and how humans move within it. But what you've got with Laurel and Hardy, again, is the looks on their faces, who you know they are, their relationship, your attempt to read what their relationship is. And so at the moment, at the end of the music box, when you've been very tense, when they dance together and they stay friends, you are delighted. You have a childlike delight. In sitcom, that's used again and again. There are moments where if someone is a really good friend with someone, the moment they sing or dance together, the number of times that people do karaoke in the front of a car, Romy and Michelle's dance at the end of Romy yeah. and Michelle's high school reunion just tells you the friends are friends again. Yeah. This is where that comes from. The fact that you can, if you have two great enough comic actors, just have them be friends and you will watch it. I think it's why I place such importance on their relationship, but also what would Laurel and Hardy do? Because there's a point, <laughs> there's a point, I don't apply that to my own life, of course. It's not kind of like, I don't say that when I leave the house of a morning. I'll but... start a little fish business. <laughs> <laughs> but... Because there's a point, there's another point in the music box, which I was, I'd say is a weak point, where they seem too stupid. And it's a point <laughs> where they are told by the postman, played by Charlie Hall, who yep. we will come back to, that they didn't have to take the piano all the way up that flight of steps. They could have driven on a road round the back and avoided the steps altogether. You didn't have to do that. You see that road down there? All you had... 
And at that point, they decide to take the piano back <laughs> down the steps and take it by horse and cart up to the house. Yeah. Now, why didn't we think of that before? Now, of course, if you didn't get that, you wouldn't get the marvellous bit of business with the horse itself, which is fantastic. But that decision, to me, I feel, no, even Laurel and Hardy wouldn't be that stupid. It just doesn't ring true. It's a brilliant joke. Yes, it's but a it's, great joke. But it's interesting as well, because the joke with Laurel and Hardy, because I know their characters, is that Stan might do that. Yes, but Ollie would go, don't be foolish. I've yeah. got a better idea. The idea that both of them suddenly are in lockstep and they are both as stupid as each other, yeah. that isn't the rule for Laurel yeah, and Hardy. absolutely. The bargain in Laurel and Hardy is so delicate and so to do with you as an audience watching their faces, knowing their characters, knowing their relationship, that when they do wobble on this and occasionally do something which would work for any other comic duo or any other comic, yeah. it sometimes doesn't quite work for them. And so they have to sort of fudge that and then keep the show going for a bit. Mm. And thank God there's a dance in a bit. Yes. <laughs> And I think certainly with comedy and often with early comedy, there's a tendency maybe of people watching to go, oh, well, it's silly. Of course, they've done something silly and now they've done something else silly. And that's not, for me, the pleasure of watching these things. It's like, because you're no. right, there is a tension there. And what minimises the tension and kind of makes me happy watching them is... The warmth, the humanity, the believability, the fact that I'm, I think I know how they're going to react and respond. That is what you're doing. That is the thing about theory of mind. That is why we watch comedy characters to guess what they'll do next. Yeah. And what they'll tend to do is something ridiculous. Mm. And we'll go, why did they do that? And then you'll run it past again and go, actually, what I know about this character means they would do that ridiculous thing. Yeah. You're always enjoying that. And bringing the box all the way down the stairs again is a classic comic joke yeah. about saying hang on i'll just run that past again does yeah. that make sense and it comes up with a false return yeah with laurel and hardy but it would come up fine for a uh, porky pig yeah absolutely the trick is those characters have to be people we believe would do that yeah. i believe father dougal would do that yeah. i believe stan laurel would do that yeah but what i know about oliver hardy yeah is that oliver hardy would come up with another stupid plan but yeah. a very ollie sort of stupid yeah plan. they would argue about it and maybe even there'd be a flip over where stan would be proved to be right the rules of this are you must be able to read them. And that's all in the fact they're now going in close on faces. And this is all about character. It's not just about antic slapstick. And that's the revolution that Laurel and Hardy birthed. There's a brilliant example of the Hardy mindset in the music box, though, where they have to get the piano down off the back of the cart onto the pavement. And Ollie says, This requires a little thought. This requires a little thought. <laughs> Which in itself is glorious. But then it's even better because his conclusion is... Now ease it down on my back. Now ease the piano down onto my back. <laughs> so you have yeah. him crouched on all fours behind a horse and cart with Stan about to place player piano onto his spine, which in itself would be fine. But the fact that it's preceded by the line, now this requires a little thought, is what yeah. makes it beautiful. Yeah, there is a lot of effort done with dialogue and character to yeah. set up your acceptance of slapstick routines. Yeah. They do things that make no sense and then sell them with character, dialogue, expression. Yeah. The fact that this is what those characters would do. They feel real. Yeah. And the moment that 
Stan, who is magic, yeah. puts a full piano on his friend's back, yeah. who you know is real. Yeah. But his friend has thought this through yeah. and has asked for it. <laughs> yes. And that delicate play of how do we sell the illogic to the audience yeah. so it has magical comic sense yeah. is so sophisticated and so yeah. brilliant. Um, and they do it all the time. Yeah. Only Ollie would present the act of intelligent thought and then come to that conclusion. Again, it's beautiful. There's nothing funnier than a fool who thinks he's clever. Yeah. And because he thinks he's clever and because he's discussing it and he's doing it to impress his friend. Yes. Again, all the stuff you can read into it is rich and brilliant. That's how they work. That's the end of part one. And we'll talk about the rest of Andrew's selection of Laurel and Hardy shorts in part two. Comfort Blanket was presented and produced by Joel Morris for the Cheese and Pickle family of podcasts. Find us on social media and don't forget to like and subscribe. Subscribe.